and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. I've been a fan of Kelly McGonigal for quite some time now. Uh, Her work has been shared with my clients over the years. Her TED Talk, which came out in 2014, titled How to Make Stress Your Friend, has over 30 million views, which makes it one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time. Not only is she a great speaker, she's also an incredible writer. Her books, The Willpower Instinct and The Upside of Stress, are fantastic. Her latest book, which is called The Joy of Movement, explores why physical exercise is a powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. We touch on all three books in today's conversation. And Kelly works as a health psychologist, and she talks a lot about today the power of impacting people, not just with her books and in her TED Talks, but also just on a one-on-one level. She's a mentor. She's an exercise instructor. And as a health psychologist, she specializes in understanding the mind-body connection. And so Kelly is somebody who loves to work with people. She cares about connecting with humans. She also is a lover of animals. We talk about her twin in this conversation. So she carries multiple identities, and we talk about those identities in today's conversation. Additionally, she has been successful in her career, and yet the conversation starts with her talking about her definition of success and of, of, of achievement. And it may be different than what you might guess or how you might define success and achievement, which is also completely fine. I know you're going to love this conversation with Kelly. So here is Kelly McGonigal. Kelly, thanks for coming on the podcast. And 
where I thought we'd start is what we were talking about before we hit record, which is usually a, a good place to start with people, which is just around this idea of achievement and success. And it's interesting because I've had on people on the podcast who went to Harvard and went to Stanford and went to Princeton and uh, are high achievers. And then their work sometimes isn't about high achievement. And so I'm curious to get your perspective. And I know a lot of our listeners are are sort of ripping and running and hoping to do well at whatever they're doing. Can you go into your framework or your mindset around what achievement means to you or what success means to you? Yeah. You know, I define success um, probably two ways. One is when I get feedback that something I did made a positive difference to someone, particularly someone who's struggling um, with something like depression or anxiety or grief or pain um, you know, the emails that I get or the the messages, that sense of, that because I did what I do, maybe I said something that someone needed to hear um, or I created an experience that gave someone hope, that, that's like number one. But also the way that I direct my life, like the choices I make, I also define success by being able to do things, spend my time on things that I love. So um, I'm highly motivated to create a life where I get to engage with activities and ideas that just make me happy or make me passionate. And that's it. Those are my two definitions of success. It's interesting. I once heard Oprah say that she wants to live her life fearlessly and that's what she aspires mm. to live her life. And I thought about it. I'm like, well, maybe some of your fear is the reason why you're Oprah. Like maybe it hasn't been like a, a fearless life. Maybe the fear is what got you to break barriers and accomplish what you've achieved or what you, you've accomplished. And so I'm wondering for you, I've heard you say that your first few books were what others wanted you to write. And certainly you taught willpower and talked about stress, but then Joy of Movement was really the book that you wanted to write. I'm curious, like how do you... um decide if you're going to go towards something that you want to do. And it sounds like a lot of your definition for success is in alignment with that compared to what the world might be asking for you and how you decide what to lean into. That is really interesting. You know, that's exactly right. I think my early books were about that first definition of success, saying things people needed to hear and that people were telling me, I see what you're doing in the world. That's helping people put it in a book. My first book was actually about chronic pain and then willpower and then stress. Yeah. And then the the joy of movement, I, I was at a time in my life where I recognized that I would be serving myself if I invested more every day in the activity of teaching movement and dance, which is something I've done for more than 20 years. And it has always been the thing that brings me the most joy day to day as a professional activity. I just love teaching movement and especially dance. And I wanted to make that a, really a core part of my identity broadly, not this little thing I did on the side that nobody knew about because everyone thought serious professor and didn't know I spent like four to five hours a day thinking about and training and actually teaching dance. I wanted to integrate that with my full identity. Um, and so that is why I wrote The Joy of Movement and convinced my publisher to let me write that. But at the same time, you know, I was just talking with my husband about this last night because I'm now working on a new book and I thought it's going to be one thing I can't help it what my orientation to life is. Even the joy of movement, it has the word joy in it. Uh, it was intended initially to be just a celebration of how exercise and movement um, and physical activity, you know, like hiking and adventure and all of that can give us meaning and hope and community. I can't help it that all the stories that I told were redemptive narratives or stories about communities coming together to help people who are suffering. That's just my orientation to life is to try to show people that if you are in a place that feels hopeless and difficult and you are struggling, that there are things you can do that will help you also experience meaning and purpose and growth and love and contribution and all of that. So it, they're all the same book, just <laughs> I think there's different angles on it. It's interesting you talk about identity. I just published a solo podcast, which I do every once in a while just to kind of riff. Uh, and I wrote some reflections. So I went to Hungary uh, two weeks ago 
And I was there with a group of Jewish leaders. I'm Jewish. Um, and we go on these trips and experience the world. It's pretty cool. But Hungary was different for me because my grandma was from Hungary and a Holocaust survivor. And, you know, two of her brothers were murdered, just atrocities, awful, awful stuff. And I, I cried my way through the freaking country. <laughs> like I, I, I just cried and I was crying, you know, in happy places, sad places, angry places, places of pride. And it had me reflecting on my identity. And I was like, where is, where are these tears coming from? Because I've lived a privileged life. Uh, my grandma experienced horrors that I haven't even come anywhere near what she experienced, but they were coming out in, in that space. And it had me reflect on my identity and my identity is part of, you know, it's from her. Um, and there's lots of pieces of our identity, but being Jewish and being passed down from her is part of who I am. I say all that to just say, like, how do you think about your identity and who you are? And um, like you mentioned, like achievement is maybe a piece of it, but there's a lot more that goes into who you are. You're an exerciser, um, you're a teacher, you're a writer. Like, how do you think about yourself from an identity standpoint? That is such an interesting question. No one has asked me. Um, gosh, I, uh, I feel like when I think about who I am, I think about my values and I think about how I spend my time and energy. And I think about the people who are in my mind are a part of myself. So I'm an identical twin. So one thing that is, is interesting about being an identical twin is from, I don't know, birth, from before birth, there is a sense that you are separate from somebody else. Um being identical twin, I've tried to describe it as being sort of like there is a you that's in a different body, but it's still you in this really deeply connected way. I know many parents feel that way about their children. Partners feel that way about their spouses. So also I feel like part of my identity is this kind of abstract sense of connection to the people around me, almost like my identity is diffused into the people I care about and the communities I'm a part of. And uh, like I know when when COVID hit and I live in California where we where I was very isolated because I had no role that was considered essential. So I was basically stuck at home for several months. And that was something I deeply realized at that point in time without being able to interact with people in a physical way, like to shared space, shared activities my sense of self was deeply depleted, if that makes sense. Um, I think that actually I, I know who I am through the contributions that I make and the ability to, to share space with other people and have positive, meaningful experiences with others. It's probably very abstract, but. Honestly, I, I think we're in a society and I'm not going to get political here, but we tend to think that identity is one thing. And that's what came up for me when I was traveling is, you know, relationship with religion is complicated, but um, there is a part of me that is my ancestors and that's inside of me that has been passed down. And then you mentioned values, like those values came from somewhere and they can come from our life experience. They can come from partially our genetic wiring, I think. Um, and for you as a twin, I mean, twins fascinate me. I've got two kids that are 14 months apart, so they're not twins, but nature and nurture show themselves. <laughs> um, and I think when people become parents, they become more believers in nature, at least for me, I was. <laughs> and and your yeah. sister especially is, is, it's interesting because you both are writers. You both have created sort of careers for yourself. I think your parents were educators, but you haven't mm -hmm. gone like this mainstream route. You don't go work for a bank, let's say nothing, not that there's <laughs> working for a I know. Bank. I think well, although my sister has held employment, steady employment longer than I have. Yeah. I think there's part of us that is we rebel against um, really strict structures on our time and attention and energy. I mean, I think I, I went to grad school to get a PhD because I couldn't even imagine having a, like a nine to six job. The idea, like briefly in periods when I've had a job 
I had to show up somewhere in the same place every day, I had this like allergic reaction of just wanting to be free. <laughs> so had to find other ways to contribute um, that created a little more freedom. I think my sister is the same way. It, it, how much of it is nature and nurture as, as you look at your sister and you experience life with her? Yeah, it's interesting because we had we had very similar experiences for the first 17 years of our lives. So there was a lot of similar nurture, but also I, I, I um, there's so many things that are, are similar about us that it, it really does make me kind of feel like we're one person split into two versions of who we are, two expressions of the same self um, because of such strong similarities. I remember once when I brought my sister to the Stanford psychology department and uh, someone was like, oh my gosh, you even lean on the wall in the same way. Like, can't you even just stand there? And no, I was like, oh, we both do have this habit. We both like, if there's anywhere to lean, we just lean <laughs> like, and exactly the same way. That's That's gotta be nature, right? And I think little expressions like that. Um, but actually I love the idea that there's something in us that we're born with and we, in, in, we get to spend our lives exploring what that is and expressing that. I, I like the idea that we aren't totally blank slates and impacted by our experiences in life. Because of course, a lot of the experiences that impact us are negative. And I feel like one of the, the points of view that I carry that has helped me through difficult experiences is also feeling like who I am at my core, whether it's temperament, biology, whatever that is, you know, just me as a human being, that I actually am equipped to deal with stuff in life that happens that may be random, that is that nurture or the, the opposite of nurture, uh, that like I carry something in me that's equipped to handle it and that persists, that is that I carry with me through life, um, which is probably, I don't know if many people think of their biological inheritance as being like that kind of a resource, but um, yeah. Yeah, I love the idea of nurturing nature as a parent that's my goal is to try to figure out my kids who they are. And then so a lot of times just get out of the way and let them figure things out. But other times, you know, my parents are very good at that too. I have to say that whether nature and nurture, they, they were really good at paying attention to who and what we cared about and allowing us to explore that. And I feel like that's core values as a, a mentor and as an educator, actually it's one of the most, things for me is to look at people and try to see who they are, their what their strengths are, what their potential is, what they love. Like I love finding out what other people love and being somebody who can mirror that and affirm that and encourage that. Uh, so like I'm always trying to get the people in my dance classes who show up every day to become dance instructors. And I'm like, I know you're here every day. You should get paid for this. So you should you should give this to other people too. So look, your work around willpower and stress specifically are are of interest to me for my work and my mm -hmm. profession. But as I did a deeper dive into who you are and your identity, I'm now giving you what your identity is. But um, <laughs> there are these there are these pieces, right? There is you know you're a teacher. You, you mentioned dance dance instructor, uh, adopting animals. There's the part of you that considers her, herself to be an exerciser, uh, writer, speaker. Is there a piece that you find to be more stressful and? And I'd be curious how you handle that piece. Uh, is there one of those pieces that when you're doing the thing that you find to be stressful and then how do you, how do you handle yeah. that? So one of the things I, I try, I figured out is I'm interested in talking to a human being about their life experience. That's my sweet spot. If you like, if you have physical pain, I can give you ideas. I can give you science. I can give you empathy. I can give you practical suggestions that will help you live with that pain and hopefully reduce that pain, whether that pain is emotional or physical or social. Like that's my sweet spot. And when you're an author and a speaker, people often want you to become an advocate for ideas or things that are bigger than that one-to-one -one relationship. And I always feel like when I give a talk, I'm thinking who in this room is having the worst day or the worst month? I'm just talking to that person, everyone else in the room, 
I hope it helps. But if not, I don't care. I'm talking to that one person. And I feel that way when I write books. I'm like, this book is not for everyone. But I know there's somebody who needs to hear this, who needs to hear this story, who will be inspired by this science, who this strategy will help them through a difficult time. I'm just writing it for them. And there is something about, particularly like in that book promotion phase, which I'm not in right now, I'm in the middle, where um, you're almost like asked to defend ideas against other ideas, or uh, I, I don't know, it just, it doesn't feel very human to me and it's not my natural role. So that's, that's stressful to me in the, like, you know, stress is big. Like my favorite form of stress is the, the stress that I feel right before I get to do something really exciting, <laughs> like a huge talk or a huge dance party or something like that. Like, I love it. Like, let's just do this. I love big events, big stuff, big energy. Um, that's not, that's not that the type of stress where I feel like somebody is asking me to fill a role that actually it's not my role. So I try to stay away from intellectual arguments, you know, and, and I really believe in leveraging science for like one-to-one -one benefit. And everything I say is like an experiment. If this idea helps you, it helps you and you'll know. And I don't, if it doesn't help you, let's figure something else out. I'm not um, attached to a particular point of view. I use science to try to, to like, I'm, I'm mining for pragmatic strategies. I'm mining for ideas that will interpret their lives in a way that helps them move forward. So pragmatically speaking, I've had this framework and I'm curious to get your perspective on it, which is to make a distinction between stress and pressure. And for me, mm -hmm. at least that's been helpful because, I mean, you do a wonderful job of talking about all the upsides and benefits of stress, but there's also these downsides that come with it. And you talk a lot about how mindset and our interpretation of the stress can impact how we see it. So my mindset, my interpretation is to say stress is, is often external um, and there are things that are going to come a pandemic um, something negative, a, a family loss, uh, that I wasn't expecting and, and it can cause stress to my life. Whereas pressure is the big speech that you're talking about or the yeah. test or the exam or like this, the podcast to me, like I always feel underprepared, even though I've got 30 questions for you today and we'll only get to five of them. Uh, I always feel like, oh my gosh, like I'm not ready to talk to Kelly. And I that love that type of stress. Yeah, Wait, that... but I want to like redefine. Before I'm going to go in yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to mess around with your definitions a little bit. I, first of all, I would, people can define things any way they want. I'm just so interested in how you set that up. So the, the what you're calling pressure, I call meaning, is the I care signal. So normally I would use the word pressure actually to define something external. But like what you're calling pressure, to me, that's when I'm feeling that type of stress and whether it's a little bit of anxiety and maybe signals going on in my body, some of which are uncomfortable and some of which might be pleasurable, but it's like, you know, it's like what you described. Um, to me, I will say to myself, Kelly, your heart is in it. My heart is in it. That's why I'm feeling this. I care. If I don't feel that, I get very concerned that I am not, my head and heart are not in the right space. If I'm doing something that matters, I wanna feel some of that anxiety, some of that normal self-doubt that is a reflection of the fact that I care. And if I didn't have that voice in my head that says you have to put an effort for this, maybe I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't show up as my best self. So I that I love and I look for that as a signal of meaning. And if it's ever not there, I think maybe I'm not the person to be doing this anymore. Somebody who who cares should be in this role uh, or in this space. But I actually, so to me, the way I define stress, this is actually really important, is stress is what arises in your body and in your brain when something that you care about is at stake. The, the bad stuff in life, the external stuff, usually that's defined as stressors stressful experiences or adverse events or things like that change stress is in you and it's a coping resource and it's a coping response and there are many benefits to it and there are you know there's lots of discomfort come with it and depending on what your stress response is can lead to harmful consequences or beneficial consequences and on often both right? So the very same physical stress response that gives you energy can also lead to insomnia if you don't know how to 
shut it down. The very same stress response that motivates you to ask for help and reach out to others also increases the pain that you'll when someone that you care about is suffering. So there's, you know, it's a, it's a mix. I love defining stress as internal because when you feel stressed, it is a sign that your body and brain are trying to get your attention and trying to help you. And it allows you to reflect on what are my coping resources? What strengths do I bring to this? How has life prepared me to meet this moment? Who can I turn to? As opposed to when we define stress, it's just like everything we don't want to happen. And then when you say I'm stressed, it, it, it basically you're just saying, I don't like my life right now. And it, that doesn't necessarily um, encourage us to harness our strengths and our resources in the same way. There's all kinds of research that's coming out. I read something literally this morning about teens and mental health and mm. specifically girls and mm -hmm. uh, what's going on with girls and, and, and suicide and depression and like really heavy stuff. Mm. What What's your view and the science's view on, on what we could maybe do to uh, help with this? Because I hear, I, I've worked with a lot of college age students. I've worked with a lot of high school age students. The amount of them that say I have anxiety or I'm stressed has never been higher. And I'm wondering, like, are they labeling these things the right way? Are they, are they viewing it? Like, what do we do? And um, I, I don't have an answer. So I'm curious to get your perspective on, on that. Yeah. I don't have an answer either. Right. So I would say that, you know, so you're asking the question at that level at which I pull back a little bit. And I also say, you know, I'm following this true, this too. I'm reading the same articles. I'm listening to people who are experts in adolescent psychology on like NPR. I am curious about this as well. I'm reading these debates about whether it's social media or social isolation, or, you know, I recently read an argument that it's about their parents' mental health. So I'm very curious about this too. And I'm trying to integrate possible truths and perspectives. But yeah, at the end of the day, I'm going to be best served if you put me in a room with a teenager. like, And, and I get to say, like, what is stressing you out? What are, what are those thoughts that you're having? What do you care about in life? You're like, so I don't I don't think I have an answer to what's causing. Well, I know I don't. Um, and I don't think that science does either. Um, if If you were to ask me to make a hypothesis, I think that there is a change in the social integration of young people combined with maybe, um, in my experience, I saw this happen with college students at Stanford. I started noticing it around, you know, maybe 2008. I, I feel like it was the first conversation maybe I had 2009 with undergraduates about this where I felt like they were less confident in their own ability to handle challenges. And it's not that they were less capable, but they didn't express this kind of confidence. Like I can do this, I can handle this. I'm gonna go in and wait for what I want. There was um, more self doubt and concern. And uh, I think that those two things increase social isolation and some mindset in which young people know that they are being negatively affected by everything going on in their life and in the world, but maybe don't yet have the, their own personal narrative of how those same experiences have helped them tap into their strengths or define who and what they care about. They're not in a place yet where they see that narrative. I think that that, that can be a very difficult place to be in and certainly would explain why people feel overwhelmed or hopeless. One of my mentors used to say, do you have this story or does this story have you? And as I hear you say, um, you know, owning your narrative or being aware of your narrative, I'm thinking of him. And then I'm thinking about the stories that I've had in, in my life that have had me. And one of them is around autonomy. And you mm. spoke earlier about how you probably weren't going to be the one that was going to go in from a nine to six and and work like you like having some autonomy and some freedom. I went through a, a coaching program and they wanted us to work on ourselves. And the thing that I was really focused on was 
exercise and diet. And for me, there was a narrative and there was a story in my head that said, I'm going to eat what I want when I want. I'm going <laughs> to exercise when I want. And if I don't want to exercise and I want to watch Netflix, like let me be and let me live. And that's joy. Yeah. And, and so autonomy, I think has been a big value of mine for a long time. And as I started to get coached on this subject, your work comes front and center for me because once again, do I have the story or does the story have me? My story and my narrative around what autonomy is and what it isn't started to rear its ugly head. And I started to recognize like, no, I actually do feel better after I exercise, or I actually love vegetables. And there was a story in my head that said, dude, you only like French fries and, and cheeseburgers and, and fried chicken. And I actually love vegetables. I worked with a nutritionist and a dietitian. She's like, Brian, you love eating vegetables according to what you're sending me. And it's true. Mm -hmm. But there was a story in my head that choosing the apple or the, the cucumber instead of the bag of chips was not an autonomy. Like my autonomy would say, go eat the chips. Can you talk about uh, willpower and connect it with the work that you've done with the joy of movement and, and try to help me, you help me. And that's basically what this podcast, yeah. you asked me who the audience was. The audience is me. I just want to be better <laughs> and hopefully others will listen and, and learn something along the way. I'm laughing because I so understand and appreciate this willpower struggle as you're describing. So, you know, I, I like defining things in ways that are empowering. So I define willpower as the ability to make choices that are consistent with your highest goals, your values, your priorities, even when some part of you wants to make a different choice, even when it's hard and you're tired and you're stressed. So right away, we're defining in willpower the recognition that we have competing selves. And this is, this is really important when it comes to autonomy, because who you really are is the person who wants to eat fried chicken and who wants to eat vegetables. They're both you. And often when people are, are struggling with behavior change, they are 100% they are identified with that sort of that, that re rebel who wants to resist what everyone else is saying they should do. So as soon as culture or a physician or your spouse, somebody is saying you should do this, you, you drop into the competing motivation, which is no. So who I really am, because I don't want to be controlled, is the one who wants to keep smoking, not exercise, whatever it is. Now, because I'm defining willpower as things that are consistent with your goals and values, I don't actually believe that eating vegetables is necessarily the willpower choice and fried chicken is not. You know, I've also, I've spent a lot of time working with people who've had eating disorders. Let me tell you, it's flipped. Eating fried chicken can be a true act of courage, right? So this is not, you know, there's not like there's a list of behaviors that are correct. It has to do with what your values are, how you want to experience life, what you want to contribute. So, you know, when I think about, about making choices, it always starts from that place of what do you want your life to be like? What do you want to experience every day? Now, it just so happens that the research is overwhelmingly clear that if you exercise, you are probably going to be happier, more connected to others, have more meaning and purpose in life, better protected against depression and anxiety, or it'll help you deal with those symptoms if you're already struggling with them. Um, you know, these are like things that people say they want. Physical activity is really strongly linked to it. So I feel pretty confident if people were to ask me, like, is this something I should want? Like if there's a part of me that thinks maybe I should exercise more, I'm going to be like, yes, I, I have strong confidence that if you do that with the mindset of choosing activities that you enjoy, that make you feel good about yourself, that put you in environments that inspire you or let you spend time with people you enjoy, uh, you are going to be glad you did it. Right. So when I think about the joy of movement, it really is about kind of like you said, you got to start paying direct attention to your actual experience. So you may have a story that says, I hate all forms of movement and exercise, but maybe when you take your dog for a walk outdoors, you actually, it helps you find a new perspective on something that's been troubling you. You feel more connected to life itself. You feel needed because your dog needs you. I mean, this is just one example. Like in that moment, that physical activity is actually fueling you in many important ways but you were defining exercise as I have to go to the gym and get on a treadmill and do something I hate until my heart rate like hits a certain point. 
So a lot of this is about not defining behaviors as this is what I should do. And this is, and it's probably going to be something I hate to, like you said, pay attention to the direct experience. If I do this, is it helping me live the life that I want or be the person I want to be? And if so, how do I support myself in choosing that when I know there's going to be some part of me that doesn't want to, or some part of me that rebels or some part of me that's too tired to do it. And then, then we get into like the willpower strategies, like how do you create an environment that supports your goal? Or what do you say to yourself when you have a setback? But it really starts from defining what it is you want and knowing that there's always going to be some part of you that is going to resist it because that's human nature. I always joke. It's like, I want to be able to drink the bottle of wine with my wife mm -hmm. and like I pay the consequences the next day, but uh, with my sleep and and what it does, but I want to have the freedom to do that. Now I want to do that not all the time, and I want to make sure that when I do do that, it's worth it and it's good wine, um, and it's it's a positive experience. Um, you're we we talked about a video before we started recording that you didn't really have anything to do with, and it has its animations, uh, but in it what became crystal clear to me is this concept of I will power, I want power and I won't power. And for whatever reason, when I heard that things started to make sense to me as far as how I was making decisions and how I was thinking about my environment and what is it that I want? What is it that I won't? What is it that I will do? Can you explain that far more articulately than I can around the power of I will want and won't? Yeah. So, okay. It's if willpower is being able to make these choices that are consistent with your highest goals and values or the, this vision that you have for your life. Um, practically speaking, it requires three skills or strengths. The first is I want power. And that is you have to actually know what your values are, what your goals are, what you want. Um, you need to have that kind of vision for your life. Otherwise you will almost always choose whatever is easiest whatever is the default, whatever other people are doing, what other people want you to do. It's very easy to be influenced by our environment, by other people, and by just sort of process and structure. So I want power is literally the ability to clarify, to have confidence in your goals and values, and to remember them. It's like one of the things that I do every morning before I get out of bed is I think about what I know about that day, and I think about which of my values I want to bring to it. And what is my, um, like my core commitment that day? And like, I, I imagine myself doing this. I want to do it with this quality. Like enthusiasm is one of my values. So if I'm thinking, oh, maybe there's something I'm nervous about, or I'm feeling kind of resentful about like Kelly, you're going to bring that value of enthusiasm to it. And you're going to show up in a way that makes other people feel good. That now that probably doesn't sound like a willpower challenge to people. But for me, it is because my willpower challenge is not, am I going to exercise today or not? Like that's done. That's so integrated into how I take care of my mental health and what makes me happy. Like this is not a big inner debate. But for me, a big inner debate is going to be more something like, how do I deal with anxiety? And that's a willpower challenge too, right? How do I do things that are uncomfortable? That sort of thing. So that's want power. You just got to, you got to think about it. You got to know it. You have to remember it so that it is there to bias your choices when you hit a choice point that matters. The I will and the I won't are sort of the more classic ways people think about willpower. I won't power is like self-control, that inhibition that I'm tempted to say this thing that might be cruel. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to actually hurt that person's feelings. I might be tempted to eat this but I'm not going to eat it because I'm predicting that I'm going to regret it and I'm not going to feel good afterwards. So it's that ability to just control your impulses, to pause, to make a plan and to do something different, to distract yourself, to go talk to someone who's going to remind you what you care about, to engage in an activity that's going to put you, put some distance between you and the temptation. Like these are skills. That's the, I won't power. And then I will power is about getting started doing something over doing nothing, ending the procrastination, ending the putting it off until tomorrow, ending the all or nothing thinking that says, if I can't put in an hour towards this project, what is the point of putting in 10 minutes? No point. So I do nothing. This I will is like, I'm going to do it. 
And for me, like, so it's interesting. A lot of people will have different levels of natural strengths. I'm, I'm super on my, I want power. I am so strong on, I won't power. Just try to tempt me. But the, I will power is like my lifelong battle. How do I do the thing that I am scared to do that I know is going to be uncomfortable that I associate with threat and my my tendency is to not do it and to just keep retreating further and further away or avoid. So probably people listening now have a sense like what their core willpower struggle is. Do they put things off? Do they avoid things? Or are they constantly indulging in things that they end up regretting or that are sabotaging some of their other values or goals? But I think it's really important to recognize what your strengths are too. Like, do you know of those three? Do you have a sense that like you're really well aligned with one of them? Yeah, one one power. I I'm pretty good at that. Like that's a strength. And I think people around me would agree. Um won't. It is a strength too. It's amazing how many people don't don't know or don't trust themselves. Uh yeah, it is a real strength when you have it. Yeah, I would say many of my clients don't know. And it's one of my biggest pieces of my work with executives because a lot of them are good at the will and are good at the won't and have discipline and are. Oh yeah. Are, but they're, they're aimed at the wrong target. They might right? be aimed at the wrong target and that golden handcuffs. You know, we hear about people that have made all this money and have everything so to speak, but they don't really know what they want and they don't necessarily know what they're working toward. And target is a great way to say it. Um, as as I hear you talk and I hear you explain your your past work, there's a piece that's coming up for me coming out of the pandemic and it is around other people. And like, I hear so much of the link between the three. You said in the beginning, the books are like the three same books, just different topics. There's a part yeah. of you that sounds like you value humans and animals, right? And like being connected to something bigger than yourself. And I can feel it. And when someone says one of their biggest values is enthusiasm, like one of the things I want to do when I interact with any human is to make them feel better, whether that's a smile or a high five or at a girl or at a boy. Like I try to live my life giving compliments to people and not like, oh, those are nice shoes compliments, but like that I really see them compliments. And for you, like I, I feel that thread through your work, which is while a lot of it is focused on the individual, there is a common uh, thread of be part of something bigger than yourself, be in service mm -hmm. to others. If you want to, you know, have better willpower, have a community. If you mm -hmm. uh, want to be able to handle stress, uh, have a, a positive relationship with stress, be in service to something. Uh, if you want to move, like once again, do it with others, be part of those people. And you mentioned COVID and the pandemic. For me, people would describe me as an extrovert. I sort of reject that as a identity of mine because I think introversion, extroversion is, is complicated, but I definitely get energy from people. I get energy from being in the woods by myself as well, but I missed the novelty of a new meal or a new restaurant popping up, or I missed just being able to have someone over and, and just watch a ball game together or going to a concert or like these, mm -hmm. these communal experiences, these shared experience traveling. Uh, what's your perspective on um, shared experiences, being part of something bigger than yourself connection? Um, and, and how do you think that threads into how you see the world? I mean, human beings survive through connection and interdependence. It's, it's like the fundamental truth of being a human there's no way to be a human and be alone i don't I, it's that's just not how humans function everything that's interesting and good about humans has to do with our relationships with other people to me you know when, whether i think about being a hero having compassion experiencing love celebration like how you can't even celebrate by yourself not not really so much of joy is experienced in community and in collective um, and I'm super introverted. Like you said, you draw energy from other people. Sometimes I 100% do not draw energy from people. It is depleting. And yet it also is meaningful. There can be that paradox. I also, you know, I grew up with terrible social anxiety. Um, it's 
you, you can have all sorts of complications around social interactions. And yet still, I actually believe that it's, it's through contribution and connection and caring um, and collaboration. I think that's where it's at. Um, and so it does it. You know, and when I wrote the joy of movement, I thought, Oh, maybe this is just me. It was good. I would go out and I'd ask people, tell me about some activity you love. And even people who you think it would be super solitary, like they are adventure athletes who spend a lot of time by themselves in the wilderness. When you ask them, tell me a story, tell me why you love it. You start hearing stories about helping strangers and the community that you build. And it's every, everyone, everyone I talked to, the stories were the same. It was about community and connection. And I was like, oh, maybe it's not just me and my like yoga and dance classes. Um, so um, yeah, but I, it's when you, when people ask me like, what are, what does the psychological science say? If you want to be happy and healthy, have a more inclusive definition of what it means to be healthy and happy include other people in that definition so that their joy can be your joy. Their pain is yours so that you're motivated to help others. Um, that your sense of contribution is also connected to what other people are doing and that you don't have to do it all by yourself, which can be very stressful. Um, there, the, to have a more expanded sense of, of who you are, including your own health and happiness to include other people, that's it's a really important mindset. Yeah. I think of the book into the wild or the movie into the wild. And at the end, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, spoiler alert, it came out a long time ago, but as the main character is passing away, he writes in his journal, happiness, only real when shared. And mm. um, while I think happiness is kind of a loaded term as is, um, you could replace it with joy uh, or meaning. Uh, mm -hmm. Those things are, are meant to be shared. Uh, I'm thinking though, I just, read, I just read a paper yesterday that was so interesting about how people around the world define happiness. Wait, where are my notes? I totally want to share this. This, this is so interesting. This is, uh, two around the world, like globe, I'll pull up the citation so that I don't not give credit to this author. Um, but this was around the world, like lots of different countries, not just Western, lots of in the Middle East and Africa and Asia, uh, all around the world, clusters of beliefs that people hold about happiness. And I thought they were so interesting. There was a cluster that is was called effortful virtuosity, which is really about believing that happiness is about having a purpose, making a difference, learning and growing. It's connected to the happiness of other people and the happiness of even like animals and nature. It's, it's big, it's inclusive. Um, and it includes transformative suffering, the belief that something good can come from your own pain and suffering. And that is part of a good life. That's one cluster of beliefs. I'm like, oh, that's like what all my books are. I totally endorse this set of beliefs about happiness. And then there was this other cluster that they called doubtful pursuit. And that is there are a whole bunch of people who believe that happiness is determined by events outside yourself. It's fixed. You're either happy or you're not. They're also slightly afraid of happiness because it makes them vulnerable in part because happiness is fragile and you can lose it at any moment. And yet they also strongly value happiness and believe they should be happy. So you believe it's out of your control. It's easy to lose. It might be threatening to have it. And you probably are fixing how happy you are anyway. But darn it, I should spend my entire life trying to be happier. I was like, oh, I recognize that mindset too. Wait, can, do you, can I just get the citation here now yeah. that I've talked about how much I love this paper? <laughs> tell you who did it. Yeah, while you're doing Isn't that. that interesting I, though? I, I've had this distinction. Look, I like distinctions. They're often semantics. Maybe it's the contrarian in me. But pleasure and joy to me, I like to distinguish between the two because pleasure I can get from eating a steak in a dark room with no one around me and feel like enjoy or have pleasure in the steak, but joy I can get from eating like a crappy meal with great company and, you know, just experiencing something with others. And so I find that sometimes people go toward pleasure 
um, and <laughs> thinking that feeling of happiness is what happiness is, whereas joy is more transcendent. It's more uh, of a way of seeing the world and interacting with the world. So I don't know if they get into that in that study, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's that is really that is that that cluster that they were calling effortful virtuosity. It really was distinguishing between hedonic definitions of happiness, which is really that pleasure versus the eudaimonic definitions of happiness, which is more meaning and perfection. So I, this is a, this is a researcher who is new to me. I, I literally just downloaded this paper yesterday, so I don't actually know how to say his name. I saw his picture, so I know it's a him. Uh, Mohsen Joshinlu, the, it's a 2019 paper called Lay Conceptions of Happiness. So that's just give a citation to that really interesting uh, finding. And I'm going to put you on the spot. Is there anything about the US? You mentioned it's sort of looking at it from a, a geographical standpoint, is there anything yeah. that it shares about the U.S.? Well, so I've been reading a lot of papers around this. Um, that this particular paper, I'm not even sure if the U.S. was included. Canada, um, very the, different. <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, I, maybe um, the some of the stuff I've seen is arguing that America Americans are much more likely to strongly value the pursuit of, of an independent kind of happiness. And also to believe that you, that you actually have more pull over it. Like if you just do everything right, you should be happy at the time because happiness is an inside job and you can just, I don't know. I don't really think about things that way. Although I do believe that, you know, you can make choices about how you think that a quality of your, your life. So I guess I'm I'm somewhat American. It's but I also don't, I don't strive for happiness that much. <laughs> but it is I like that effortful virtuosity. It's interesting. I've had people on the podcast who have challenged this idea that Americans are just about individualism because if you look at our history, it's all we're always doing things together. We're communal. Mm -hmm. Even think about our sports. Oh, yeah our sports teams or you're at Stanford, like there's a pride in, in being part of something bigger than yourself. And there is this idea that we're almost individualistic to a fault and capitalism draws on that. But capitalism also requires great teamwork and capitalism also gets into philanthropy and there's other pieces that exist in capitalism that don't exist in other societies. So um, it, it is, it's interesting um, just to think about we're humans. Yeah, I mean, we may be more individualistic than some societies, but we're human, which means we are we already are deeply connected, and we we um, get a lot of our value and meaning through our relationships and our communities and our contributions. So, yeah. Before we went into this deep dive into this new research, which is really cool, and I've got a million questions about, but you're probably not ready to answer. I'm going to shift back the attention and the light to you. You dropped in something around social anxiety and, and being brought up with this this challenge that you faced. And you even brought in the word threat earlier. And to me, that was an ode to what you've shared around this idea of, are you seeing things as a challenge or a threat? And if we're threatened, we either fight or flight or, or maybe retreat. And if we're challenged freeze. or freeze. I, I'm a big freezer. Or, or freeze, right? <laughs> and if we interpret it as challenge, if we interpret a challenge, we go toward it and, and can play with it. Mm -hmm. But freeze. So if you're a big freezer and you've experienced the social anxiety and I've watched your TED talk, and if you haven't seen Kelly's TED talk, like her poise and ability to perform and execute in the moment, clearly you were, I guess, focusing on talking to one person in the audience, as you said earlier, but I mean, no one would watch you in that TED talk and say, this is someone who struggled with social anxiety. Can you make sense of that for people and hopefully inspire yeah. them if they're, if they have a challenge with social anxiety? Um, yeah, it is interesting because, so this is going back to nature and nurture. There's clearly something in my biology that is primed for fear that I mean, I'm like a giant threat detector. You know, we joke in my family that I'm, you know, I'm like the canary or the whatever, like my threshold is set so low to detect threat. I'll be the first to let you know. Um, so that's, and that's so living with that can be really hard because I was exceptionally shy always worried that like if I survived second grade, third grade was going to be the thing that was just too hard and would reveal to everyone that I'm not capable of handling life. I mean, like, you know, that kind of mindset. There are kids who are just born that way. 
Um, and I felt that way about just about everything in life. Was your sister and like that, included- Kelly? Was your sister no. wired like that too? <laughs> no, this is like our one distinction. She's much more adventurous, much bolder, much more confident. She was such a leader. You know, like the the report cards coming home would be like, Kelly's such a gentle, thoughtful person. <laughs> Jane is the leader of the entire class. Um, my, my two kids to a T, by the way, 14 months apart. The boy yeah. is gentle, sweet, empathetic, kind. My daughter is a force. And we went yeah. for parent-teacher conferences and they go, yeah, we want her autograph because she's going to be president of the United States. <laughs> that, that's yeah, my that daughter. Definitely, that definitely would have been my sister. Yeah. I was the one who was like hiding in a corner feeding my snack to the ants because the ants wouldn't find enough food on their own. <laughs> You're like, that's... Uh, anyways. Uh, so I included fear of speaking. I mean, I remember having to give talks and classes and things like that and being terrified. There were times I didn't go to do things I was supposed to do because I couldn't handle the anxiety of it. And I would say that there's, so there's a story that I've only recently started telling about the Ted talk since you mentioned that. I was not nervous when I gave that talk. I was in exactly the right mindset to give that talk for a specific reason. And I tell the story now because now nobody's going to know who I'm talking about. That was 10 years ago. The person who gave a talk before me had a panic attack on stage and she completely melted down. And in that moment, I felt so much empathy for her. You know, it's like every TED speaker's worst nightmare. And like my heart just burst open with compassion and a desire for her to be okay and feel okay. And I started doing this Tonglen meditation where you try to breathe in someone's suffering and, and breathe out courage and support and hope and all of that just by instinct. So by the time I was going up on stage, I was completely connected to that mindset, the mindset of caring for someone else, of feeling connected, not thinking about myself. So when I went up on that stage, I look comfortable because I wasn't even thinking it was, I was not thinking this is the most important talk I've ever given in my life. I hope I do well. I don't like, I was in a different version of myself. And I think that that it reflects um, a mindset that I've tried to use throughout my life to overcome anxiety, which is you either are going to spend this hour being of service or spend an hour being in fear. And then your life is over when it's over. So what do you want to do? And that's kind of the mindset that I try to take. Like you have a limited amount of time in life. What is your life for? And if I can make a choice where I think that I've done something of value, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. And that has helped me with a lot of stuff. But that, you know, certainly for something like that TED Talk, it was such an interesting experience zero anxiety because I was just thrust into a full mind body experience of compassion for someone else. I think that's a beautiful place for, for us to close. We started with success and ended with sort of meaning and and your purpose and really why you do this work. So uh, if people want to find out more about you, I know you've got your website, kellymcgonagall.com. Your latest book is the joy of movement. Uh, and I know they can find everything online. I looked on Twitter. I don't think you're as active on Twitter right now. Not at all. Zero. <laughs> you can you can find me um, on Instagram. I don't post a lot, but um, you can DM me or tag me. And that's on if you if you're gonna try social media, that's the only one right now. Perfect. I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Kelly, this was really fun. I there's there's a quote that I have that I I was like I want to I wonder if she's heard this before. It's from the great philosopher Beyonce, where she says, "I'm nervous if I'm not nervous. If I'm nervous, it means I'm going to have a great show." And 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 like that to me captures a lot of your work. It's interesting as you talked about your TED talk, how it was like you were actually grounded and you were good. But I'd imagine even if you weren't, you would have interpreted those nerves yeah. as. As, it would have been fine. It would have been fine as well. So um, this I would have been- put on a show. Exactly. <laughs> but because of that, because of what happened, I was even better than putting on a show. 
I was actually connected to my value of why I was giving a talk in the first place. It wasn't so, performance. It was magic. Right? Yeah, yeah it, it wasn't a performance. Yeah. That's cool. Thanks, Kelly. Take care. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You can have all sorts of complications around social interactions and yet still actually believe that it's it's through contribution and connection and caring um, and collaboration. I think that's where it's at.